Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is three-time Oscar nominee Carter Burwell, whose most recent nomination, which was also BAFTA nominated, is his score for Martin McDonough's dark comedy, The Banshees of Inishirin. And it's a really interesting score because it balances toying with childlike elements, particularly through a harp and celeste that's mirroring Colin Farrell's character with a lingering darkness and melancholy and sense of mystery. Burwell describes it as almost a fairy tale or fable-like. And it was a score that once I heard it, once I saw the movie, I really wanted to talk to Carter about it well before he was even nominated. So that was, uh, from my perspective, a little bonus. But of course, we go further aflung. It's a shorter interview, so we don't go too far. But we get into his writing process, his conversations with Martin, his thoughts on experimentation in film music more broadly. It's quick, but it hits some good and big points. Now, it's going to be a busy month for me. I have one more interview coming out and two more solo episodes. So in a week and a half, two weeks, you might be tired of hearing my voice. If so, well, too bad. But sit back and I hope you enjoy. Carter, thanks so much for joining me today. How have you been? Uh, I've been good. Um, it's just trying to start up my next project. But of course, a week ago, I heard I'm nominated for an Academy Award. So that's good, too. <laughs> Was that something that you expected, or is it? I'm sure it's always got to be a nice surprise. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not in John Williams' uh, situation where he's been nominated <laughs> 50 times or whatever. So it's still a nice surprise for me. Yes, I, uh, you know, I knew that the movie has been getting a good response, which is great. I especially like it because it's, it's an odd movie. I, mean, I don't think any of us who are making it were thinking, oh, this one's going to, you know, people are going to love this right. film, and uh, uh, but it's. It's been getting such a great response. So I knew there was a possibility of uh, some awards, you know, stuff going on, but I certainly did not expect it. Sure. And talk about it being an odd movie. It's one of the reactions that I've kind of enjoyed the most is it's pitched sort of as a tragic comedy, dark black comedy, some things like that. And the amount of people misinterpreting that and thinking that it's just going to be a full-blown comedy where, you know, they'll be laughing their asses off the whole time and are like, what is going on here? I'm just depressed instead. But with something that has a bit more of a complicated tonal balance like that, does that make it a bit more challenging from your end to strike that balance too or not lean, you know, too far one way or the other? Well, um, it's a challenge, but it's also, it's definitely what i enjoy i mean those are the types of movies that i that i like and um, i've been fortunate to have a fair number of them in my life either from martin or from the cohen's or um spike jones and charlie kaufman all those films are so often some combination of something horrible going on but that you somehow (laughs) they've shot it in a way that makes you want to laugh you know and also in, in so many of those films the music gets to tell you something that wouldn't otherwise be obvious you know it's not like the music is not just playing what you see on screen it's telling you there's other things going on which is what i like to do so it's challenging in that yeah i never know exactly what i'm going to do but i but it's the challenge that that i love and with banshees in particular i think in that last comment saying how the the music's 
telling you something that isn't, it's not just evoking what's literally on the screen or what's literally being said and that's it. One of the things that I think that first cue really tells you is I think it comes just after you get this sequence of Colin Farrell being the happiest guy on earth, you know, saying hi to everybody. And then, you know, a little after that, the music kicks in and there is a bit of a joy and an optimism in there, but it's it's really tinged in this foreboding too. And it lets you know, like, this is not going to be the happiest story you've ever seen on film. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You know, it's, I think the first thing you said was so, it's so true that it has a lot to do with what your expectations are as an, as an mm-hmm. audience member. I didn't intend that first cue to be foreboding. But if you went in thinking it was going to be a lighthearted comedy, that you will probably tell you. That's right. It's not just going to be all rainbows. But if you went in expecting a Martin McDonough film, after all, his, <laughs> right, right. His, his last one had you know, Fran McDormand bombing the, firebombing the police station. If you went in expecting that, then you might be surprised by the rainbows and the, and the smiles. It's been fascinating to hear what people think coming out of this, this film. I think if you ask them two weeks after, people have all kind of settled into a, a kind of a similar take that, you know, most people like some things about it, find other things difficult, but they feel that it captures something about humanity and honestly. But anyway, with regard to like what my intention was, you're right. I I did want to kind of balance those two things and all the way through, like right through to the very end, balance a sense of almost like a fairy tale quality with Mm -hmm. the the celeste and and the harp, but balance that with down below in the lower pitched instruments, something that's just a little mysterious and and dark that's happening that you'll never understand. I mean, it's not like anyone will come out and say, well, I really understand Brandon Gleason's character's point of view, because he never really explains it that well. It's just, but the fact is humanities, people are prickly and, you know, you can't ever really understand them completely. So that's that stuff down below is supposed to be sort of playing that. Hmm. Interesting. So at what point did that musical or instrumental approach sort of come to you or come into the score? Were, you know, were there other ideas musically or instrumentally that you tried to kind of evoke that mystery of the unknown? So this is an interesting story to that. I mean, I began with what you might call the tune, which is the just the melody, which I came up with on piano, probably while they were either while they were shooting or while they were editing. When I started to think about instrumentation, really because of Colin's character, he's got this childlike quality you know, he's a man-child, and uh, so that made me think of the celeste. I, and in the end, I thought, well, what if, you know, I like that. I wasn't sure Martin would like it because it is so, so much plays the child, but did the the harp just to play off of it, a counter melody on the harp. So that's where that, the sort of brighter parts on the top came from. The stuff down below actually came from a totally different direction, which is that Martin had a few pieces of music that he had sent me even before he shot the film that he had been listening to either when he was writing it or prepping the film. One of them is the Bulgarian women's song that you hear at the very top of the film. Hmm. A couple of them were the Brahms leader, which you hear at particularly emotional moments. But another one was an Indonesian piece, this Javanese gamelan piece. I'm a big fan of gamelan. I wasn't sure how we were going to make that work in this (laughs) film. You know, it takes place in an island off the coast of Ireland. But he had, he liked it. And it was was a great tune. And so we were keeping in mind that we might want to try to put this gamelan piece somewhere. And he thought there was this montage in the middle of the film where maybe we'd play it. So they, they laid it in, he and the editor, and it lived there for a while. I was thinking, 
what are we going to do? We get to the middle of the movie and suddenly we're in Indonesia. I, so I thought one way that I could help with that was to include some gamelan sounds in my score, like get your ear used to the sound of these big metallic gongs. That's actually why I started putting them into the bottom of the score, like they're playing down there along with the bass, was because I thought, well, that'll help me when we get to the gamelan piece. But then when we had written all the rest of the score, Martin just said, and I agreed with him, well, you know, you've got all these great themes and they came playing our characters. Why would we use the Indonesian piece here in the heart of the film? So we just threw that out and used my work. So in other words, there is no longer an Indonesian gamelan in the, in the score, but it kind of lives on like a ghost in that it influenced me to start using those instruments in, in my score. And they do work and they are kind of mysterious. I don't think anybody would listen to the score and say, is that a gamelan? Although I have had people like, depending on where they're coming from, like take the film, the score apart and say, I think I heard a marimba in there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You know, so if you're a marimba <laughs> player, you'll hear the marimba. And if you're a gamelan player, you probably hear the gamelan. But um, it wasn't meant to stand out, but it is a sort of an, the very unidentifiableness of it is interesting because you're in this place that in every other way is extremely identified. Like it's you're in Ireland in 1920s, right? Like everything tells you that the way people dress and the uh, the buildings and the carts and the horses but the music is telling you something different. It's telling you you're in some sort of slightly different place. And, and in the end, I, I, when I started really thinking, why is this music work or what am I trying to achieve? I began thinking that what it really is doing is turning the movie into a fable. It's playing a little more like a fairy tale. And so in, in doing that and in avoiding something that sounds very 1920s or very overly Irish, does that also partially add a little, I guess, maybe universality to it, or at least detach it from simply being like, here is a period piece, here's a historical story. So that's one thing that it does. And that's right. Uh, you know, they they make references to the Irish Civil War, but mm -hmm. uh, Martin made it very obvious to me right away. I don't expect you to know anything about the Irish uh, you know, Civil War. Uh, it only lasted a couple of years. And honestly, if you're not Irish, you, I think most of us don't know anything about it. But but it does that, but it also helps stuff like the fingers not seem quite so real, right? It's not, this isn't <laughs> yeah. a physical reality. I mean, let's face it, it's not, it's not real. What actually brought it home for me was I was halfway into writing the score. And one day I was reading to my daughter, who's um, 11, uh, reading Grimm's fairy tales. And we're reading Cinderella. And in the Grimm's telling of the story, the um, evil stepmother has her daughters cut off parts of their feet to fit into the um, slipper. Mm. And I was reading that to her and thinking, well, that reminds me of a story, another story uh, I know about some fingers. And I began to think, well, that is what the music is doing. I'm turning it into um, a fable. And I think that's great. I think it, it helps people to get past the fingers a little bit. Yes, that happens. But I think people don't take it too literally, uh, partly because of the attitude that the music has already created this little magic it, it weaves uh, about this world. Well, it's interesting, and it, it does go back to your, your comment right near the beginning of evoking or pulling things out that might not otherwise be obvious from what's going on. Now, I think this is the, the fourth film from Martin that you've scored, and obviously you have you know long-standing relationships with other directors, the Coen brothers being the most famous one, uh, where you've done a lot of their work. Broadly speaking, what's the effect of having those long-standing working relationships on your scoring process and on your approach to a particular film? Well, it's hard to say what 
what the effect is on, on a particular film, but the general effect is that I think there's just a certain amount of trust. So what that means for me is I can try something that I think maybe they won't like, but if I like it, I know that I can put the idea out there. They're not going to just fire me and hire someone else just because they hate my first idea. So that's good. It allows me to be a little more experimental. I don't have to do whatever constitutes normal film music. You know, it is a conservative business. There's a lot of money involved. Just even a relatively inexpensive film like this, it still costs like $15 million. So there's a natural tendency to try to do something that everyone will like, but that's not going to make an interesting film, uh, right? So you that trust allows us, they and me and everyone else involved, to try some different things and be a little more experimental. And also means they can be also honest, like Martin or Joel or Ethan, they can honestly say, you know, I don't think that's working. And they know I'm not going to go, I can't stand it, these people, I'm, I'm quitting. You know, everyone can just be more honest with each other, put our ideas out there without worrying that we'll be judged too harshly. That's the main thing it, it means to me. There's also a part where you know, music is hard to talk about for anybody, mm -hmm. if you're not, especially if you're not a musician. And I think that a lot, all directors find it a little bit difficult to talk about. So the fact that we know each other and have been through this before means we do have little shorthands for our ideas of what the function of music is in a film. Everyone's got their, every director has their own idea about that. And you begin to have an, a language in common to help with discussing that. So that's another reason. Although in truth, you know, with Joe and Ethan and Martin, the people we're talking about, it's not like we sit around and actually talk about the function of music in the film that much. I mean, hardly ever. It's surprising. You know, we don't all, we don't live in the same place. So mostly we get together, spot the film, say, here's where the music should go. And then we're not together in the same place again until um, the recording. So there isn't actually as much conversation as, as one might think. Now, in taking the, Martin wanted to use the, that Indonesian piece in the middle, how did the conversation go between the two of you of him explaining or talking about what it was about the piece or the instrumentation of the gamelan that drew his attention or made it seem like this is something that fits with the film? Yeah, so that's a good example. He had no explanation <laughs> no, <laughs> at all. And the same with the other ones, like the Bulgarian, because I knew the piece, the Bulgarian piece, back from the 80s when it was a kind of a hit in the world music scene. Mm. And um, I said, gee, aren't people going to be confused and think they're in Bulgaria? But he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he, you know, he, he, he's younger than I am, so he didn't, I don't think he knew it from back then, and he didn't, he wasn't worried. And the same thing. In uh, Three Billboards, it opens with an aria, an operatic aria taken from an Irish song sung by Renee Fleming. It's very beautiful. But when I first saw that in there, I thought, are people going to think they're in Ireland? But, you know, Martin, he doesn't take, I, I guess, <laughs> he, he expects more from his audience than I do. And he's, you know, he, <laughs> he, he, so he doesn't worry about the people taking it too literally. Um, I think maybe that's partly the background from theater where nothing is taken too literally. Everything you understand when you're in the theater, that everything is an artifice and a symbol. So, uh, yeah, no, he had no explanation, no explanation for the Indonesian piece. We both liked it. That's a catchy tune. And I said, it's going to seem a little strange to have a gamelan suddenly playing in the middle, after, especially after we've gotten used to being in on this island in Ireland. But um, no, no, uh, he just, he liked the tune and that's fine. The Joe and Ethan are the same way. It's, we don't analyze the work. We kind of leave that for other people to do. We have our own reasons for thinking that mm -hmm. what we're doing makes sense. And, you know, over like whatever, 17 movies that, that Cohen's and I have done, some, some, sometimes the audiences get what we're after, sometimes they don't. 
sometimes they catch up with us years later. You know, it, you, you can't spend your time second guessing uh, the audience. There's nothing to be gained from it, I don't think. I think that's part and parcel with the types of films those are as well. You know, they're not necessarily cookie cutter pieces. I think there's almost an inherent expectation that there will be motivations behind choices that aren't necessarily obvious or take some work from the audience to figure out why something's there. I do think that talking about some of the non-score pieces in Three Billboards and Banshees is interesting because I think we often expect a bit of a musical continuity in a film. Right, yeah. But there's something about those choices in Three Billboards or Banshees, for instance, where, like you said, at least for me, watching either of those, when those tracks hit, you aren't suddenly like, well, what's going on? This doesn't make any sense. Good. Well, that's right. I think in Banshees, I think part of it also is simply that one of the things, one of Martin's goals in making um, the film was to make a beautiful film. Like he wanted the cinematography to capture the most beautiful aspects of, of that coast, which it does. And I think that those pieces that, that are in there, like the um, the Bulgarian piece and the um, the Brahms, they're just beautiful. <laughs> you just And you can just sit back and enjoy the, the sheer beauty of them. You know, they're all also, they're emotionally appropriate to what's going on. They're emotionally true. The Bulgarian piece, I think that in, if you translate it, it's actually about a couple that are sitting under a tree and they're falling in love. It's beautiful and it captures a smile on Colin Farrell's face. And the leader are, it's funny, they're they're sad, but they're also kind of stylistically not so different from the score, not because I was copying them, but they the piano kind of stays on one note for, again, for a really long time while the vocal wanders about. So even though they're from the 19th century, they have a certain minimalism that seems to suit the style of our film. So I'm analyzing, but they're really unanalyzable. I think they are true and they represent something true about the story, even though you say, why should that work? Well, I mean, I think that's also just something with film and from like a 30,000 foot view. So often when you really look at everything that goes on in, a, in creating a film, even one that's relatively smaller, more restrained, lower budget, you go, how does all of this work? It is just a miracle that even the most straightforward film comes together at all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> it is a miracle. That's right. That's true. But going off that comment about how the score and some of those music choices do happen to work together, at what point did you come in and start working on the film and, and coming up with some of the initial ideas for the score? Well, uh, Martin and I talked about the music before he shot and the main reason for that was that he had the question, am I going to write the fiddle tune that Brendan Gleeson's character is writing? Well, it so happens that Brendan Gleeson is a fiddler and he wanted to write that fiddle tune. So that was a question and he had to, that had to be solved before they shot, right? So we had that conversation and I said, well, I'm happy to write it, but if Brendan wants to write it, we should at least hear what he's got in mind because, you know, he plays a composer and it would be great for his character if he did it. So I never did write anything for that. When Martin and I heard Brendan coming up with things, we liked what he had. And again, it just makes so much sense, especially from the point of view of a director, to get Brendan as an actor committed to his character playing a composer to have him actually write in the tune. We had a conversation about music just for that reason. And while we were having that conversation, he asked if I had any thoughts about the score and what the score would be. And I said, well, you know, it's about two Irishmen on an island off the coast of Ireland during the Irish Civil War. Is there any reason why the music wouldn't be a little Irish? And, and he said, 
Oh, I hate that idea. No, no, I hate I hate <laughs> old world Deedle D Irish film music. It, it, it's just really it really got a very strong response from him. And we, you know, and again, this is months before anyone had to decide anything about it. But clearly that was not going to be the direction. And, um, and we didn't talk about why he just had a visceral uh, dislike of the idea. And I think it's partly, you know, his parents are Irish and his first plays are set in Ireland. I think he's just he doesn't want people to like pigeonhole him as, you know, mm-hmm. a guy who's writing Irish stories. But there's more to it than that. I, I I honestly don't even know. He didn't, again, didn't explain, but it was very clear that's not what the score was going to be. So while he was shooting, I was thinking of other ideas. And I don't know exactly at what point the tunes that are in there came up, but I don't really, really write the music until I see some of the footage. Because um, for me, I don't, a screenplay is not a film. A screenplay, I, I enjoy write, reading screenplays and I enjoy them as a form, but I feel that they're their own form their own you know medium they're not a film and so um i like to wait and see the look of the film the colors the placement of the camera actors their faces you know all of that informs what i do so i really set my mind to it when i'm actually there's a rough cut of the film hmm. so with with that in mind that are you when you're reading the script before there's any footage or anything is your mind even going to the music at any point or or you know, is that really shut out entirely until it's further along? I'm not specifically thinking about the music, but if there's something in there that makes me think of music, um, that's a good thing. That did not happen with this one particularly. I did a film last year, um, also Lena Dunham's film, um, Catherine Called Birdie. And mm-hmm. that one, I was reading the script and actually about a third of the way in, I knew exactly what I thought the music should be. And I even knew who I should perform it. But that's fairly unusual. I mean, sometimes I'll be reading a script and say, yes, I know exactly what it's called for. But that was not true with Three Billboards. And that was not true um, with this either. It was a little, I was unsure. Once I had it, I began to develop some ideas. And fortunately, when I sent those to Martin, he he liked them all. We basically went with the, those ideas. But I didn't get it from the screenplay. I more got it from watching, in particular, Colin Farrell's character, because the music is mostly playing him. We see the yeah. story mostly from his point of view. And Brendan Gleeson kind of provides his own score with his fiddle tune, right? Um, so I was mostly jumping off from Colin's performance. And not to take us on too much of a tangent, but... Because you mentioned Catherine called Birdie, and I have not seen it, I've heard the music. Did having an acapella score present its own new set of challenges to you? Well, it certainly presents a big set of challenges to the person mixing the film, because you've got to mix <laughs> like the dialogue against uh, mm. voices in the score, which is tough. I think he, he did a great job. It was exactly what I wanted to do. So yes, there are challenges, but again, there are challenges I was very eager to take on and in this case, it's not just writing for, say, eight voices. It's writing for eight specific voices because this group is very, these are eight individuals with their own different backgrounds and different skills. So um, that was interesting. Yeah, I, I had to learn what each of them does, what they like to do, what they don't like to do. And it was great. It was like writing for a whole new ensemble. It was writing for a whole new ensemble. And um, yeah, I, I really loved the experience. That brings me into something else that I was curious about. You'd, you'd mentioned earlier about having long-standing relationships with directors, and that kind of gives you more room to push boundaries and experiment in a medium or a form that, like you said, is, is often more conservative. How much room do you think there is in 
music for film, TV, documentary to really push boundaries and try new things out? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think theoretically there's enormous room. It's really a question of the risks that people are willing to take because it is asking a lot. Like Martin has um, a lot of control of his films. He didn't say on his first film, but ever since then he he has. And um, the same with Joel and Ethan. You know, they have a lot of control and so they can take risks. So that's part of the answer to your question is how, how much when you've got a couple of people who have control, then you can take more risks if 12 people have to vote on what what's what the film should be then suddenly you you start to go by mathematically you're going towards more of a lowest common denominator right that just happens so i think it there's that different media and different genres also are are more open or closed um you know when i was a kid uh, sci science fiction was the area where there was like you know people were doing all sorts of experiments like forbidden planet then after star wars it started you know that suddenly all that experimentation stopped and everything had to sound like john williams but <laughs> sci-fi has moved back in a little more in that direction but then if you listen like this year listen to all quiet on the western front i i love voker's score it's that is pushing the envelope uh it's great i love it so it's it has a lot to do with the people involved probably it's mostly about that i'll also say it has a, certainly has an effect on me is the schedule like if i've got four weeks to write and orchestrate everything. That includes coming up with ideas, writing all the cues, orchestrating it. It's hard to take the time to try lots of different things out. You're going to, you know, you end up saying, okay, so what can I do in the next four weeks? And you reach for the things that are doable. Whereas if you have eight weeks, you know, you're able to say, well, okay, I'm going to explore some other options here and I can try lots of it and throw away. I've got more time to try things and throw them away. So that's part of it. And the business just the schedules are compressed. It's just the way yeah. that it is. It's been true you know, my whole life. The more I can start early, uh, the better. But that's also a challenge and just that comes with this industry. You know, most films are financed in a way by debt and they, you know, if they can make the whole production shorter, then they can start like getting the money coming in instead of going out. And so I don't know. So anyway, it certainly makes a difference to me. The more mm -hmm. time I have, the wider the, the latitude is because I simply have more time to try things and throw them away. And is that something that you look for, at least some of the time in projects when you're choosing something to work on? You know, not really. You know, I have no control of it, first of all, of course. No, no one person has control of it. But I will say that with the Coens, often I get a little more post time. And the reason is that they're cutting their own film. So they mm. give themselves, they're producing, directing and cutting. So they give themselves as a gift to themselves more post time. And I benefit just tangentially because of that. But uh, no, I can't say that if you came to me with, with a script and you said, hey, we've got 12 weeks, that, that doesn't necessarily make me think, oh, of course, I'm going to do this. Uh, <laughs> in the end, I'm always judging it based upon uh, you know the director and the, the screenplay and you know other things. I don't think I've ever chosen something or, or said no to something because of the schedule. But I will say that it has a real impact on the process, certainly, and, and the results, too, I think. Do you think there's really ever going to be a change in that timeline? I mean, it seems like you said, you know, that's been the case forever. I think that it has. It's a tendency to think, oh, God, it's getting worse and worse with digital editing or whatever. But I read a quote from David Raxton about like Hollywood in the 50s, and he said it was the same, basically exactly the same, six weeks to, you know, score a film. And I, I don't think it is going to change. I can't think of any um, reason why why it would, unfortunately. Um, 
Yeah, so that's honestly, when people ask what the challenges of this work, the schedule is yeah. always challenge number one to me. And I think for any other film composer, they all tell you the same thing, like the lack of sleep and the inability to have a personal life because you're working 16 hours a day. It's a, yeah, it's a challenge, but you have to be able to deal with it. Otherwise you can't really do this work. And then even when you're not working, you know, you're stuck talking to people like me instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, um, but really on, on that note, I, uh, you know, <laughs> I did want to tell you, great chatting to you. I'm, I'm glad you could come on. I will also second that I really enjoyed Volker's score for All Quiet on the Western Front. It's, it's cool with that and with Banshees and you know, some of the other scores that have gotten attention. It's, it's cool seeing things that are not necessarily conventional, having people listen to it, see it in, in context and like it and have it resonate with them. Yeah, isn't it great? And also, like, you know, especially the Motion Picture Academy is, you know, traditionally been pretty conservative, but in the last 10, 15 years, I don't know. All I can say is their taste is, you know, becoming more like my taste, but, but maybe that's just because, <laughs> you know, we're all aging at the same time. I don't know. But it's nice. I agree. It's um, it's a great thing. Yeah. Well, on that note, I appreciate you joining me. Great talking to you. And, you know, if uh, anyone hasn't seen the movie or listened to the score, highly recommend it. Enjoy both of them a lot. Well, thanks. It's good talking to you, too.